Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. One of the things I love doing about this podcast is that we are able to probe into the various facets of filmmaking. Though most of our guests have been directors, we have also been able to speak with their writers, actors, and special effects technicians who help bring a filmmaker's vision to life. I've said it before and it bears repeating now. I learn something from every interview we do here, and the education I receive helps inspire me to keep evolving creatively and as a human being. One of the crafts that is really popular among the postmortem audience is makeup effects. I've been lucky enough to work with many of the best in the business and each of them comes up through the ranks through an entirely different route. The experiences of Tom Savini vary widely from those of Rick Baker or Billy Corso, but there is a generosity of exchange in the makeup effects field, extending back to the grandfather of modern makeup effects, Dick Smith. Lots of magicians fight hard to keep their secrets. Not so with Dick Smith. Though he was indisputably at the top of his field, his generosity was vast and inclusive. Kids and professionals would contact him with questions on how he made his magic, and he was unstintingly open with his techniques and was happy to share. This creative generosity has continued in the field ever since the passing of Smith. It's a great creative community bound by monsters and mystery, and they're always eager to share. Our guest today, Tony Gardner, and I have spent time on numerous projects together, and it's time for him to share some of his secrets with us after this. Where is your favorite ghost story set? An imposing stately home on a stormy night? A misty graveyard, a dank former asylum with dripping walls and abandoned doll heads everywhere? Or how about a bright, buzzing modern metropolis in the very near future? When an engineering disaster shakes a city to its core, supernatural phenomena plague those left behind, seemingly tormented souls from beyond the grave. Instead of spirit mediums and seances, a group of researchers uses the tools of scientific inquiry to search for the truth, all while the horror, danger, and death build to a terrifying crescendo. Welcome to Falling, a dark, creeping horror tale from the classic haunted house genre in a time and a place you've never seen before, and which News Limited said will leave readers on the edge of their seats. Read an excerpt or buy the epic tale for just a couple of bucks right now at falling.io. Falling. So, Tony, where did it all begin for a a kid from Ohio? uh, The dream of making monsters. How did it start with you? Oh, my gosh. I, I was just kind of the weird kid in the neighborhood that made movies with their friends. And uh, all my movies were weird. The fact that we were making movies was weird, but we would do weird stuff and do makeups or do creatures or, or do like a, a magic trick sort of a setup and do some special effects stuff. And um, I, I was just always really interested in, in how the stuff was done. Um, so did you read like the early Tom Savini book, the Dick Smith books, the, the all those makeup things? Uh, I had the Dick Smith book. Tom's came out after I was already kind of going. Uh-huh. Um, but there was a Richard Corson stage makeup book, actually, that um, it went through all these processes like um, like how to do a life cast and how to do prosthetics and stuff like that. And the pictures weren't great, but the descriptions were awesome. Oh, that's so that and um, a magazine called Cinemagic or Cinema. I oh, think it was Cinemagic and Cinefix and uh, yeah. Yeah, it was Cinemagic. And they had this article on building a, a stop motion 
creature. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. And I started building a, a big spider. And then I went and saw Alien. I was like, oh, I'm going to turn this into a face hugger. And then I started realizing you could copy the stuff that you'd seen in movies. And, and that's sort of what got me going. What were the, the movies that really got you excited from, from the earliest days? The earliest days? Oh, boy. The Man Who Fell to Earth. Oh, the David Bowie, Nicholas Rogue movie? Yeah, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Just completely still fascinated by that one. Um, and then it was the cliche makeup artist responses, Planet of the Apes and yeah. Frankenstein and, and stuff like that. But um, I, I just really liked seeing something presented in a manner that made you believe it was real. And I had always been involved in magic and that was the whole thing. You were trying to show somebody something that didn't really exist. So I, I just really liked that challenge. So you're a kid in Ohio. When did you start to think maybe I could really do this for real and, and do it as a living? Oh, never. never. <laughs> um, it wasn't anything, this was, uh, early 80s, this wasn't anything considered a career option. It was just like my weird hobby, you know? And I, I thought I'd get into filmmaking of some sort. I was in Ohio and I went to Ohio University because they had a theater program and a communications program. That was as close as it got to uh, filmmaking. Right. After a year as a theater major, I was like, I. <laughs> I, I need to go somewhere where I can do more stuff. And uh, I applied to USC, actually. Um, and, so you uh, went to SC and did you go to film school there? No, no, I didn't. Um, okay, so I applied to USC because, you know, I read George Lucas went there. I'm like, well, that must be where you go then. Um, and that Steven Spielberg had wanted to go there. Um, so I applied there. They accepted me as a fine arts major because my portfolio was really weird. It had a face hugger in it. It had <laughs> like all these film related things in it, but they were all sort of like props in a way. Um, so they accepted me as a fine arts major and said I could reapply uh, as a theater major next year because it was a two year program. And then I went down this rabbit hole and uh, never came out. <laughs> Now, I think I met you, when I first met you, I think it was your first job, if I'm not mistaken, was yeah. on Thriller. Yeah. Um, so that had to have been an amazing experience because all of the top makeup effects people in, in town worked on that. You know, it was yeah. Rick Baker was the boss, but all, everybody else was, was in there, Kevin Yeager and Steve Johnson and, and all these people. And uh, so that had to have been quite a magical first step into the pool. Oh, it was, it was pretty overwhelming. I was 18 and I was still um, trying to go to school at USC at the same time. Because um, uh, Rick had offered me a four week job on a music video. And he's like, you're all over the place. You like music and theater and all this other stuff. And maybe at the end of four weeks, you'll at least know if this is something you want to do or not. And um, the four weeks turned into four years. And as you know, everybody that, you know, on the makeup crew got to build a zombie on themselves and be in it. So it was, it was like beyond magical because I had the complete film experience going literally from the guy who swept the floors and took out the trash and picked up food and supplies through becoming part of the crew, building a zombie on myself, going to set, um, getting to be in it, and then having uh, John uh, Landis invite me to come watch them edit and stuff after because he knew I was interested in filmmaking. I was like, I don't care what I do after all this whole experience. It's like anything in the creative capacity in any of these arenas, I would find you know rewarding. How did you get the job with Rick? Uh, I interviewed him for a paper at school. Oh, at SC? Um, yeah, over the summer. And um, I had done a uh, 
I had an art class the semester before that, and I needed to find somebody to um, uh, help me turn it into independent study, someone who could be like a mentor and grade you. So I looked up Rick in the phone book, because that's all you had back then. I had to drive to North Hollywood, look up in a phone booth. There's like a bazillion Rick Bakers. <laughs> I, I, I was literally almost at the end of his street. I'm like, I'm going to start with the one right here. And I knocked on the door and it was Rick's dad. Oh. And, and Rick was in England doing Greystoke. And um, I talked to his dad. And then out, over time, his dad was like mentoring a couple of people uh, in independent study. And he happened to mention that. And I'm like, oh, hey, um, would you have any interest? This is over the course of a few conversations. And Rick's dad was a painter famous for his rocks and water paintings. <laughs> Dude, I walked. The reason, the whole reason the conversation went off the rails to begin with is Rick's dad, Ralph, answers the door. It's like, okay, well, this obviously isn't Rick. And I'm talking to him and I'm so nervous trying to explain what I'm trying to do. And there's this photograph of a gorilla on the wall behind him, literally like three or like four feet by six feet. It was like massive. It was this macro close-up headshot that was beautiful and I kept looking past him to that <laughs> and he's like oh do you like that and I said yeah that's amazing and, and he's like do you want to take a look at it and I said sure and I, I, I took a few steps in and I'm looking at it and I said something about being a photograph he's like actually that's that's a painting and I did it wow and then he started explaining using a pizza cutter to make the lines for the hair and all this stuff. And I was like, this guy's a genius, you know? And um, we started talking about art and stuff like that. And then that led into eventually um, him helping me turn a horrible art class at school into an independent study thing where I could do the stuff I wanted to do. Um, but because of that, I was able to interview Rick that summer. And then I was like, okay, I did what I wanted to do. I, I interviewed Rick Baker. Yeah, you know, that was it. I could cross that off my list, literally. And then he called me um, and offered me the job on Thriller. And uh, I was 18. I was just starting school. It was only four weeks. Yeah. So I thought I could do work and school at the same time. I was also a drummer in the marching band. And I'm like, well, the games are the weekends and sectionals are in the evenings. I can make this work. Yeah, why not? And, and it was great. And like you said, all the people on it were amazing. And everybody was so nice and generous and sharing. It was literally one of those experiences where you go, if this is what this industry is like, I'm on board for the long haul because this was a magical experience. So did you quit school to devote yourself to it full time? Yeah, I, I lasted a few weeks and then I quit school, but I stayed in the marching band. <laughs> That's <laughs> difficult to do. Well, I, did, I just didn't tell anybody. <laughs> but I talked to Rick about it and, and we figured out a way to make it work again, because most of the stuff was weekends. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I've since gone back to USC and taught actually, which is, Wow. Pretty hilarious because I took a class from William Tuttle there when I was there. So it's nice right. to be able oh. to go. The time and, machine. Bill, Bill yeah. Tuttle did all the great stuff like the time machine and everything, the 50s and 60s. Yeah, and the Twilight Zone episode. Uh, oh, yeah, on the wing. Yeah, yeah. And the Morlocks from, uh, yeah, Time Machine, right? Yeah. Lots of good stuff. Uh, amazing. Well, I think the first time you headed your own shop was on Return of the Living Dead. Is that right? Yeah, but it, it wasn't really my shop. I mean, I I actually talked to Rick about using his space in the evenings because we were all working on Cocoon during the day. Right. Um, and then I had a little, literally a piece of wood upstairs with my, all my stuff on it. And then at the end of the day, when everybody was done, I would bring this piece of wood down and put it at a table and work on the half corpse or you know the dogs or or whatever. 
Um, well, tell me yeah. about the difference there, because now you're heading the operation. It's your responsibility. You have to be the businessman as well as the artist. Yeah, it was it was kind of a weird start because it was literally like just one thing. It's like one guy needed a prop and right. he had to do some stuff. And it's going to be your your second job and you're going to work on it in the evenings and it's over in two weeks it was only i only had two weeks to do it and they said and if you want to do the half corpse oh yeah you have to do these split dogs right well. so um, it kind of mushroomed yeah so it, there was never this sense of like like having like my own thing because like i i got bill sturgeon to help do hand mechanics and another guy from usc to help with some stuff and uh, it was literally just at nights, you know, on the weekend. Wow. Um, and that was over, like in no time. Well, a huge one to follow not long after was the blob. The, yeah. The yeah. size and complexity of that. Now, this was kind of the birth of Alterian, wasn't it? Yeah. This is where um, everything launched as a, as a business in earnest. But so, I had always said I didn't want to run a business. I didn't want that headache. And, you know, but too bad if you were going to do what you were going to do, you had to handle the business as well. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They um, it started out. I was I again, I was only going to do a couple things for the movie. And then they had a, a, a change of thinking as far as who was going to run the stuff. And they asked me to take on a larger workload. And then all of a sudden. I'm doing all the makeup stuff. Lyle Conway is doing all the creature stuff. We're working in the same building. And, and all of a sudden there's 20 people working for me. And I was 24. Yeah. So here it is in the 80s, this, this period of unbelievable explosive makeup effects techniques being created, Rob Bottin doing the thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the obvious remake is the blob because you can handle it in, in a way that the technology had never allowed before. And it must have given you great creative license, you know, working with Chuck Russell. I, I wonder what those exchanges were like. Did he give you your head to do like Carpenter did with Rob or did he have very specific ideas? Uh, Chuck Russell was amazing to work with. He totally let me just get as weird ideas <laughs> as possible. I mean, we were doing weird stuff with fabrics and 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 glitter and and slime and and um, trying to do bodies that could collapse in. And um, he he was very encouraging and very enthusiastic about all of it. But we were experimenting with everything we'd seen everybody else do. You know. Dick injecting solvents in the foam skin so that they'd bloat up and Ooh. stuff like that. Um, what was the most challenging part, do you think, to, to the job? Because that seems like it was such a big job. Um, I think once we got into it, it was fun. So the organizational stuff stopped being a challenge. I think the biggest thing was, um, trying to do effects like Donovan Leach's character getting pulled out the window, stuff that was of a size that was so unwieldy because as pre-production went on, I started doing more and more of the blob stuff, basically where it overlapped the victims. So that whole gag was, was on me. And um, there were just so many pieces to it. And, and, and it really required a commitment from Donovan to let us torture him. <laughs> uh, and he was in that thing in an air tank. And uh, um, that was definitely the biggest challenge. Yeah, so, so Chuck says to you, look, we need this, his, this character's body yanked through a window, figure it out. Was that kind of it? Yeah, and then we did sculptures, like little maquette sculptures of scenes. Before there were like some storyboards, we'd sort of like do a little poor man's mock-up. And then we'd talk back and forth through those. So the usual maquette uh, technique that uh, yeah. is, is common when you're presenting the makeup effects sculpt ideas. Yeah, so like we had a little foam core, a little wall with a window in it. We had a guy stretched out being pulled with this blob going through the window. 
You know, it's really weird. I just thought of my mom sent me when I was in arts class in third grade. We had to do like monsters and I did the blob. Wow. Like, I did a weird little blob thing with little legs sticking out of it. Like in third were, grade. Yeah. It's like, it's just really weird to realize it. Cause I was thinking about the sculpture of the, the guy in the blob going out the window and uh, just had this really weird flashback. <laughs> well, well, the first time you and I worked together was on Psycho 4. And yeah. I mean, we worked alongside each other on Thriller because, I mean, you have to acknowledge yeah. that you were in it. Yeah, you're well, I, I was just a player. I was a guy under pounds of makeup. Yeah, but you're in the last scene of the movie in the house walking towards him. You're front yeah. and center. You're like... Cynthia and I both, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's great. It was That's where I met you, and I was like, wow, this guy's really cool. And then, <laughs> and then later on, we find out that you're you know, a director and, and you've done all this stuff. And it's well, like, oh. I became one after Thriller, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you were doing like interviews and stuff like that. Yeah, doing interviews yeah. and making ofs and things like that. Yeah. Working my way into the director's chair eventually. Yeah. That was really cool. It was very inspiring to, to watch what you were doing and then to have a chance to finally work with you. For well, you. I remembered you as an 18 year old on, on Thriller and when the time came to do Psycho 4, you seemed like the right guy to come to. And <laughs> you created the mother corpses. And there were a couple of stages. Tell me about, you know, of course, you had the original Psycho and the two sequels that existed before. Right. But we're working with Olivia Hussey. We're, we're taking young mother, whom nobody had ever seen before, mm. and then taking her to the corpse level. Yeah, that was really cool. It was really, it was really neat to have that opportunity to sort of figure out how she would have been taxidermied, yeah. like what materials would have been used and how that would impact what she looked like and how she dried out. So we, we had the end point, obviously, and then based on your script, we sort of had to reverse engineer our way to, to, to Olivia. So, and you think of mother as being an old lady, but right. she yeah. dies at, yeah. at 40, basically. Yeah. yeah. So we, we did a life cast of Olivia. We took a bunch of pictures of her. And, then, and we got started with that. We did a couple of clay copies of her and started sculpting into that to figure out how she'd dry out and become more skeletal. And then I think you picked one or two of those that we, uh, that we finished off. Yeah, there are a couple of stages. Now, I have Mother in my office right here in our studio, sitting in one of my director's chairs. And uh, whenever somebody walks in and they haven't been warned, every single person jumps a mile when they see this corpse sitting there. But there were a couple of different versions. There was Mother dead for a year and then Mother dead for a long time that you did. Yeah. And does, if she sits in your office with you all the time, does she talk to you? Oh, I wish. <laughs> Are you sure she doesn't talk to you? <laughs> well, maybe she does, and I just don't listen. Uh, but, uh, who, who listens to their mother? You know? uh, there you go. <laughs> so that was the first time together. Then later on, and we are now celebrating the 30th anniversary of Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. <gasps> so this was a big job we did together. And there was... Uh, it was much more demanding, creating creatures, full suit, full body suit creatures, as well as heads that had mechanics that had to be hidden within their, their feline skulls. So yeah. tell, tell me about that process. Well, um, I think we started out in the traditional, you know, here's a couple of sculptures of some different directions. And we presented those to you. And um, Tom Hester, whom you know, yeah, um, another a, guy from Thriller, yeah. Yeah, he was the skeleton. Uh, um, he's a cat fanatic. And uh -huh. he had sculpted like a, a, basically a standing uh, panther. And then we started figuring out how to make that a little more lizardy. And then also we're trying to figure out the balance between reptilian and new, sort of like newborn and that whole like energy thing. And then the feline aspect. 
and how to balance those out. And, and they're hairless and, too. Yeah, and the, so, so we embraced the sort of scale shapes more because they were hairless. But that was the challenge because whatever it ended up being as the final version, sort of like Mother and Seiko, we had to reverse engineer back to Brian Krauss and Alice Krieg as the starting point and how do you do a progressive um, transformation? Because, because you see Brian's character wounded and, and visible in a, like a halfway stage. So there's a lot of really cool stuff to, to figure out, but the whole suit on a person thing, we don't, I'd only done one prior to that. And uh, we had Which a lot was of that. Which was that? It was on Mike McKay for um, Cast a Deadly Spell. It was that HBO? Oh, yeah, which Joe Doherty wrote. Yeah. Yeah. And Gail Ann Hurd produced it, and um, Martin Campbell directed it. And there was this gargoyle. Yeah. We had these animatronic wings on it and an animatronic head. It's a pretty massive creation for a, an HBO movie at that time, a low yeah. budget HBO movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember Gail saying, all right, you're gonna read it and tell me that this cost this, but we only have this. So how do we make it look like the first number, but we only have the second number? So that's why I learned about storyboards and how to put the money where, where it matters. Um, and that was what was nice on Sleepwalkers is you had stuff storyboarded. So we knew what was featured and, and what wasn't, especially like the fire scenes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and makeup effects uh, and special effects are, are, I don't storyboard much. I do action scenes and where everybody needs to be on the same page because of the limitations of what you can do with people puppeting creatures and you know angles that have to be done to hide everything, to, to make things work and everybody's on the mm -hmm. same page. But what was unique too about Sleepwalkers is you're creating a creature that's not been seen before. So there's not like something to go back to, you know, blo the blob, there'd been a blob, you were able right. to do something completely unique on your own. But these also had to have facial movements from within. And so tell me about engineering that and their remote controls that control the eyebrows and, and the yeah. eyes blinking and things like that. Well, the, one of the bigger challenges with the, with the animatronics for the creature was the fact that they were so streamlined. So there was nowhere to hide like a big bank of motors, like the hunchback we had on this gargoyle. So I was trying to design also so that there was some airspace between the performer's head and the skin of the creature. So we could fit some motors in there to make the brows move and the lips move and the jaw move. In the end, I think the jaw ended up being uh, Karen, Malchus, and Michael doing the jaw themselves. And then we were adding the lips and the eyes and the brows to that. Um, but it was super challenging because it was super tight, but I was really fortunate that we had uh, Eric Fiedler and um, I think we had Eric Fiedler, Bill Sturgeon, I think Dave Penicus worked on it some as well. Yeah. Um, and they're all really like their names that everybody knows is like mechanical geniuses. So we had like some of the, be the best people on this problem solving the heads and we were actually able to make it so the bulk of everything fit in that and we could disconnect the head so that the person wearing it could take a break and be able to breathe and see. I mean, you have to take in mind that someone has to do a performance in it. So it's got to be made out of something that gives them move, uh, room to move in the areas that matter. But also you have to think the head needs to come off, the arms need to come off, the feet, they need to go to the bathroom. There's a whole logistical thing that goes with putting a person inside this as opposed to using a puppet. So there was a, there was a lot there to figure out. And then we had two at the same time uh, on set. So we had dual operators for the heads as well as dual groups of people just suiting them up because getting them into those skin tight costumes was just as much of a chore, you know? Well, it takes a very special actor to be able to be yeah. a person in a suit. We'll get into Doug Jones later, but, uh -huh. but Mike and Karen on this, 
you'd worked with them before. And so I was trusting you because you had people you worked with and, and they did a great job and all, but tell me about that, where you found them, how uh, working with people who are comfortable with those suits, the cumbersome suits and the heads and all of that, that, you know, surely they lost five pounds a day in sweat. Yeah, seriously. Um, well, Mike McKay was presented to us as um, the person that was going to be the the, um, the hunchback gargoyle statue, sort of from the beginning. Um, and he's he's very small and very thin, which is great because you can build up on him and it doesn't look like a big bulky suit. And we had a spare copy of one of his suits in our shop that we didn't use for the shoot. And Karen Malkus was visiting the shop once. We're like, oh my God, you're about the same size as Mike McKay. And because we, we had used her as a, as a puppeteer on that same thing, because she had very skinny wrists and stuff. Um, but after it was over, we realized that she might actually be able to fit in Mike's suit. So we had this extra suit. Like, Karen, let's try this on you. Karen is my wife's sister. Right. So it was literally the most casual, um, hey, let's just put this on you and, 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 oh, let's stick a big head on you and see what you can do. And she was running around the shop. She's a dancer. She's a part of the San Diego Ballet Company doing all this crazy stuff in this creature suit. I'm like, oh my God, we have to use you and stuff. And that started us using Karen for a block of, I don't know, almost like a decade. Wow. In, in different things. From um, ballet to creature performer. Yeah, yeah just like that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the work with Sam Raimi. I mean, with Darkman, you're creating a comic book character for a movie based on a comic that doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. So what was that process? It kind of is reminiscent of the shadow from the, from the thirties and forties radio uh, yeah. serials and stuff. Tell me about that. So. Yeah. Um, but I, fortunately I'd worked with Sam before on evil dead too, doing some stuff at Doug Beswick's for that. So I knew what Sam was like on set and everything. Um, and how he talked and how his sort of sense of reality, was sort of like a stylized reality. So I, I knew I had a bit of flexibility and that the Darkman character had to live within this sort of stylized real world. Um, so that was a little sort of liberating, you know? Um, and Sam was gonna do stuff with bright colors and all that. Um, he was actually really fixated on the poster for Evil Dead 2, which is literally a skull with right. eyeballs in it. He's like, grinning, yeah. that would be great. <laughs> And it's like digital technology. No, there, there wasn't anything that existed then that would have allowed for that. He would have been this this horrendous rod puppet, dark <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, but um, we did a bunch of test sculptures. I sculpted a maquette, and then we started sculpting on Bruce Campbell. Ah. Uh-huh. At Sam Raimi, it, it's going to be Bruce Campbell as as Dark Man. And using the angles of Bruce's face to help make it look more evil and scary and all that kind of stuff. And then um, while we were doing the design work, they cast Liam Neeson. Right. And I remember going, oh my God, this is literally the polar opposite of what I would have chosen. He has Yeah, a very- he's got such a full face and- it- Yeah, and it was literally like a square. I'm like, well, how do you do turn that into a skull? And it was- super daunting but in the end oh and he, and he had like his nose was broken and and a, a bit pushed to one side and in the end all those things that were him that we had to recreate into this makeup made the character more complete and less of it sort of grounded it in reality because we had liam's strong so it wasn't all latex yeah yeah i mean we totally covered him like all the side of his face that's him, it's like a quarter inch of uh, of foam latex. We had to build everything out on his whole head and neck so that we could carve in. 
And then once we carved in, all those burn pieces were super thin. Um, but figuring out like what's foam and where the dental acrylic teeth go and how they connect and how that works and, and what color are his eyes, stuff like that. I mean, some of it was planned, but some was trial and error. And some was just somebody doing something and not telling you. Um, <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. We had um, these lenses for Liam as uh, Peyton Westlake um, to wear that were, when he's the fake version of Peyton Westlake, when he comes back as the artificial one, we had these, these lenses that were like bluer than blue. And then when he was dark man, the idea was he's been burned and his eyes, he's got a blue gray color to his real eyes. It's like, we'll use those for dark man. But Liam started wearing the lenses all the time because he thought it sort of matched the color palette of the of the the film and it sort of matched the intensity. So Darkman's eyes ended up super blue, but it works for the exact same reason that Liam said, let's do it. You know, it's like everything's sort of like punched up. The colors right. and the auction and and well, in Raimi's style, everything is a little yeah. bigger than life, yeah. It, it was very much like a cartoon movie, and we did reference the Phantom. Yeah. Like, literally, like, his his wardrobe, Sam was like, how can we get something like the Phantom's weird long coat with the short cape on the back of it? Right, the scarf so, and the hat. and the, Yeah, so he, he had this genius idea that Liam after he gets out of the hospital, stumbles down this alley. And I don't know if it's even really visible in the movie, but it's the dumpster behind a theater company and they've thrown out all these costumes. Uh, and that's where he pulls all this stuff out from to, to keep himself warm. So, so Sam, it makes it kind of theatrical. Yeah, so Sam got to kind of, you know, style Darkman's look exactly the way he wanted. And then the bandages, um, we all talked about Invisible Man being a classic and there's like certain design lines in that, like the diagonal bandage over the nose and stuff that, that Sam and I both hit on, you know, it's like, this really helps because he's not symmetrical and, and this covers that. And, and that was a very organic sort of uh, experience too. And then it was the layers of dirt. I'd never been on something where I had to create a character that was a prosthetic makeup character that was multiple piece before and also had to work so many days. And, and then we did the wardrobe, the bandage wardrobe, and then the dirt on that. So we had this weird crossover with the wardrobe department, which were, they were very gracious with us, allowing us to control the whole character. Um, but it was a huge undertaking, like all the time. Yeah, well, I don't think most people realize that when you're doing facial prosthetics, once you take it off at the end of the day, it goes in the trash and you put yeah. a brand new set and repaint everything every single day. You have to start from scratch. Yeah, and, and he worked like 27 days in that makeup. Wow. And But a lot of the times he had the bandages on. So very quickly on, I realized that we could do just a little sort of like, Lone Ranger mask version right. of his burned look and then put the teeth on him and the bandages would cover the whole rest of his head. So depending on what stage of bandage he was in, we could do this sort of raccoon mask version <laughs> instead and save him a 4 a.m. call time in the makeup chair because when we started, it was two of us in over three hours doing the makeup. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned this was pre-CGI and all that, but I want to go back to Sleepwalkers for a second in that this was the second CGI movie made, the second ever. morph yeah. movie ever. Yeah. And so there are scenes where we also have motion control. And so if I wanted to do a transformation, a morph during a move, a camera move, it would take forever to do the motion control. And we talked about this a little on the last show, but... But uh, there were times when it was like, okay, I just can do the move and then the camera has to stop and then we do the, the makeup transitions. But tell me how that affected you, the change, the, the uh, suddenly here, you're able to do a transformation on camera without 
bladders and change your heads and things like yeah, that. It, it was a bit overwhelming, to be honest. I mean, the, even the concept in the beginning, you know, when we talked about um, Brian changing in the car on Sleepwalkers. Oh, yeah. To all those and, different faces. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about like, like a, a transitional makeup. And I remember the visual effects guy saying, we don't need any of that. And it doesn't even need to be a makeup. Yeah, Jeff Oaken, yeah. Yeah, just sculpt us a head and we'll stick the head in the car and we can transition from him to your head, something else. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this sounds insane, you know? And then by the end of it, it's like, by the end of the show, it's like, oh, what else can we do? This is really cool. We can just sculpt the halfway point and get ourselves somewhere else. And yeah, there are scenes where... Uh, for example, uh, Alice turns towards the camera, the camera pushes in and her face changes from normal Alice to halfway Alice. Yeah, and, and it's, it's seamless. It was like so liberating. I didn't realize at the time it would basically take over the creature industry. Yeah, now um, it's the norm, right? Yeah, oh, more than anything, to be honest. Um, unless you're doing a killer doll, apparently. <laughs> and we'll get to that too. Um, but like when we did um, Stephen King's Tommyknockers, we had an alien that had to transition into Marge Helgenberger. Right. If I got your name wrong, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. Um, and again, we only had to do a head that was like halfway and they would do the, the transition and just so liberating as far as an artist being able to be free to experiment with ideas that didn't have to conform to fitting on a person's face. You could go into that space and make things thinner and stuff like that. And it's only it's gotten cool. better and better over the years. And now oh, I mean, a yeah. lot of makeups are entirely done by CG and no makeup at all. Although yeah. to me, it seems the best is a marriage of the two where you oh, can have actors yeah. interacting and they see what they're seeing. Yeah, agreed. Or you just do a head that they can interact with and then CG the body. I mean, the stuff where there's overlap, I think it's to everyone's advantage. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, it, it just, you don't have little lines where the join of the prosthetic on the face, you can blend it in great, but if your facial movements crinkle those joins, yeah. you can get rid of it. You can smooth yeah. it out, make it perfect. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, really. I mean, and now with like 3D printers and, and I mean, there's just so many doors continually being open where there's tools that exist where at first you're like, I don't know what I'm gonna use this for. And then all of a sudden it's like indispensable. Yeah, yeah, I mean, overwhelmingly so. So you worked again with Sam on Army of Darkness, another seemingly overwhelmingly complicated movie to do. Yeah, the good thing is the workload was split up though. Because KNB had like the Army of the Dead and the Deadites, like the flying one and the one in the pit. Right. Then, Pretty massive job. Yeah. Huge. Just the army alone walking was trenches in the ground and all this prep that was insane. And again, no CG, all actors yes. in suits. Yeah. Yeah. Shoot the flaming arrow over there. No, over there. <laughs> I can't see which way you're pointing. Yeah. And then we did everything on Bruce and uh, as Ash and then as evil Ash and then Ash getting chopped up. And then when evil Ash burns and there's a skeleton of him, we did an animatronic skeleton that could fight and do like Three Stooges kind of gags. Um, and Beth and, and uh, Evil Ash and Evil Sheila were sort of like Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein right. kind of thing. And then um, everything else, like the stretch of arms and, and all that. I mean, it was really Sam wanting to push the, the comedic aspect of yeah. stuff and literally Three Stooges kind of gags, you know? And, uh, and that was really fun. Um, it was just weird to do so much work for like a head where the eyes roll and then the top of the head pops open <laughs> the jaw drops and it's literally on screen for like two seconds it's like but we 
We spent two weeks making this. <laughs> yeah, and and I, wait, it's gone? No. <laughs> but that was kind of fun to be able to like just sort of pack all sorts of different things uh, into that one, and to work with Sam again. Yeah, and well, although we didn't work together on this one, there, we have a movie that we both worked on that uh, has become a perennial. Yeah. Uh, it was the first movie Doug Jones was ever in. Yeah. Uh, it was. Hocus Pocus. I wrote the original scripts for Hocus Pocus eight years before it was made. And to see Billy Butcherson be brought to life by my friend, Tony Gardner, even though I wasn't involved in the production, it was pretty awesome. And although there were 11 writers on it after me, it came back to my script pretty much, yeah. uh, pretty much, not entirely, but almost. Yeah. And the descriptions of the sisters and the description of Billy Butcherson didn't change a bit. So tell me about bringing the Billy Butcherson character to life. I mean, his head has to come off and all these things and open his mouth, open his mouth, yeah. which breaks through stitches and moths come out. Yeah. Um, I remember reading the script and going, this zombie is so cool. I mean, everything <laughs> about it was so cool. And the fact that he came from the 1800s that I just kept thinking of Ichabod Crane and or a revolutionary war kind of figure or Michael Jackson. Because, <laughs> you know, he and his sister were wearing the military stuff then. Right. And my brain was kind of fixated on all that. I remember reading the script and there were designs that we had to do for the witches as well as Billy. And your version of the script actually had the two boys that were in those cages. Yeah. Age. Right. And I was like, this is great. Old age makeup, zombies. Oh, and we want an animatronic cat. Okay, cool. <laughs> it's just like this list just kept getting longer and longer and it got super exciting. Um, but I really wanted to do justice to the zombie and not have it be this like bulky thing, you know? And, and because he was written with his mouth stitched shut, it was obvious that performance was going to be more important than dialogue because he only had a few lines, really. Yeah. Um, and I remember seeing these commercials on TV for uh, McDonald's, and they had this Mac Tonight character yeah. that was this gang yeah. with this giant moon head, and I'm, and he's running around and playing the piano and doing all this stuff, and the head sculpted with this big smile on it, and I'm like. That dude's got to be so miserable on that, but he is making it look so cool. I like, I like had to search down who built the moon guy, and they had a head cast of Doug from doing the moon guy. So I asked if I could like borrow it from him, and then we started sculpting all the designs on Doug's head. It's just like it had to be Doug. Wow. He went in, in and auditioned, and he nailed it. And we're all like everything like sort of came together, which was which was great. Um, and the wardrobe designer was kind of going down that uh, Revolutionary War long hair kind of vibe with the, the the big jacket with the giant buttons and stuff like that. So everything sort of like felt like it was falling into place. Um, then it was more about the challenges of how do we stitch his mouth shut and have him work all day with his mouth closed. And then he has to cut it open on camera. And he has to, after he cuts it open in the same shot, has to cough out dust and live moths that have to fly away. And again, no CG. So how do you do this practically? So there was problem solving in these arenas that you wouldn't traditionally call makeup effects, but you know, we're doing like dental retainers and cups with holes and filling them with fuller's earth and having a moth wrangler come in and place moths with tweezers <laughs> in Doug's mouth, stacking them so he could gently compress the space they're in and be able to close his mouth. And then we're gluing the two halves of the, the pre-split stitches shut. <laughs> and he's, this poor guy's got a time dragging a knife, opening his mouth, coughing, and then also coughing again and getting some more air out behind the moths. How many so, takes was that? Dude, the first take was great. 
It had to be. It had to be. Great. The reset must have been a nightmare. Yeah, we. I think we shot it three times. I think the idea was let's see what we could get. And I remember the second time, all this stuff was in Doug's mouth a little too long. Oh. And the Fuller's Earth, there's holes in the back of the, the, the latex cup thing in his mouth. And by the time he opens his mouth, it's like, it was more like mud. <laughs> came out and all the moths were alive and they were surfing on the surface of the mud <laughs> coming out of his mouth and they're like all right well that take didn't work and then we tried it one more time i think but the first one was the one that you actually see on camera as, uh, on, in the finished film as is often the case well how great though to create characters i i know it's thrilling for me on halloween they always show the movie uh, yeah. and, and all these kids dressed as the Sanderson yeah. sisters and Billy Butcher yeah. to have created such iconic looks yeah. for, you know, the actresses were well known, but their look in Hocus Pocus was completely unique for them, particularly Beth. Yeah. And Kevin Haney did her teeth and I think he did her age makeup stuff too um, for the first one. Some lady came in and applied real acrylic nails every morning. Wow. And then at the end of the day, took them all off because Bette didn't want to have to worry about them coming off. She was so thorough in everything she did. Mm. Um, well, speaking was, of old age makeups, um, the Jackass movies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that, because you're you're creating makeups that have to be believable, not just in front of the camera, but to people who are being pranked. Yeah, that's definitely super challenging. Um, we started doing them on the Jackass guys for the TV series. And there wasn't so much riding on them. It was just part of a prank, you know, let's make up Knoxville and, and he can go bother somebody and let's not tell him, but let's make up Spike Jones in another makeup and he can go harass Knoxville trying to pull his prank. And it just kept building and they kept adding people to the mix as we went through a couple seasons of the TV show. So we got a chance to kind of learn what we were doing. And kind of refine <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah, and then also silicone was starting to, to, to show up. And like foam latex prosthetics, it's like painting a tabletop. It's an opaque surface and you have to paint it to look translucent. And it works like if somebody's in the shade, but in bright sunlight, they look like like they just came out of a coffin and they have pasting makeup <laughs> on. Um, but with the silicone, it, it sort of changed the game for us. And I think by the second Jackass movie, um, we were doing all the guys in silicone and it was so much easier to get right into somebody's face and have them not clue in. I think it made everybody a bit bolder in, in what they were doing. God help us. <laughs> yeah, but it made it really fun. It's super nerve wracking at the same time. And then that sort of spawned Bad Grandpa, which right. was all of a sudden we're gonna do his makeup, what, a hundred times? And, <laughs> and go and try and prank people. And there's days where you don't get anything because yeah. nobody fell for the joke or, or, or whatever. But even scarier than that was the I did this thing called Who's America on Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh yeah. And he had to exist, not just as a fake character in the real world, but he had to like, we, we got Dick Cheney. We, <laughs> yes. we did an interview with Dick Cheney and Dick Cheney asked, our, our Sasha's character asked Dick Cheney to sign his waterboarding kit. <laughs> and he did. And Sasha's in this full makeup, oh. like in a chair three feet away from him for so great. like three hours. Oh. You can't get in. The, the thing that people don't realize is you can't get in to fix something. If it's like a jackass prank or something like this, it has to be locked in for good. Whereas like on a film, you could, you know, say cut and do a touch up and, and change to a different angle where it looks better. This is all sort of wing it. This is the kind of stuff I was doing 
as a kid in Ohio, yeah. making people up like they'd been in, a, in an accident, having them go knock on a door, <laughs> just, just messed up stuff. You had good training for your work with Knoxville and Cohen. Yeah, yeah. With Knoxville, though, you learn to wear a cup to work, so it's a different <laughs> it's a different reality. Anybody's fair game. Yeah. Well, right now you're about you're starting work on the second season of Chucky. You've been involved with the Chucky doll and the franchise, the movies for a long time. Tell me about that challenge and how that has evolved over the over the years of Don Mancini's uh, Chucky world. Uh, okay, so I started on Seed of Chucky. And um, I'd never done anything this elaborate before, um, but they needed, Glenn, they needed Chucky, Tiffany, and Glenn. And it had to match, uh, Tiffany and Chucky had to match his look in a previous film where Chucky's all cut up. There was no reference. We, were, we had like a VHS tape and we would freeze frame it and take a picture of the screen. This is how long ago this was. Wow. And, and we would print that. And, you know, and Xerox it. Um, <laughs> and that was our point of reference. So it was super hard to launch. We had three months to build everything, no reference. And we had three characters and it was gonna shoot in Romania. Aye. Why I said yes, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I like a challenge, I know. I like it when someone says something's impossible, but this at the time was, was pretty impossible. We got there. Uh, we got to Romania and the power wasn't regulated. All of our stuff ran on electronics. There was no regulation from the power line outside the studio to where we were working. We blew up the computer that drives the mouth uh, and all the characters, I think on day three. Oh, um, just like, like trial by fire. I was like, if we survive this, I don't know if I'll ever do another thing like this again. Oh man. Here we are and we're in season two and we've been doing this for 19 years, right? Um, wow. But the biggest challenge was um, the dialogue and not losing a take because you got the mouth shape wrong. So being able to like pre-record all that and then just focus on the, the body performance, that was, that was one of the biggest like turning points for us. And then coordinating all the people under the sets, puppeteering three characters, you have three camps of seven people under the set on headsets. And you're trying to like direct them while Don's up above trying to direct the actors interacting with the puppets. And people are trying not to fall through the holes in the <laughs> for the puppeteers. It's like, it, it was insanity. It was, you know, and we were somewhere where we didn't speak the language and resources were super scarce. Wow. Well, it brings me back to when we did Sleepwalkers with the mirror gag, because yeah. uh, Karen and Mike are in their suits in a reverse room behind a fake mirror, um, looking at a TV monitor to try and mimic what uh, Brian and Alice were doing. Which was they were on top of each other simulating. Yes, having sex. <laughs> so it's like two people in in full body foam latex creature suits, watching monitors, trying to copy two other people. Yeah, that was insanity as well. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Well, let's talk about Daft Punk. Uh, you have collaborated with these guys. You've been writing and directing videos with them and stuff. Tell me about that. Yeah. Uh, that all came about because of Spike Jones, actually. Ah, the, the guy was one of the great uh, music video directors of all time, as well as being a great filmmaker. Yeah, and and Spike knew the the guys Gimon and and Tama from I I don't know where, but they were all hanging out one day talking about uh, wanting to create these personas instead of just grabbing a mask off the shelf. Let's make something that's like permanent, a little more permanent. And they had these ideas for robots, and they were explaining it to Spike. Spike's like, I have no idea who's ever done anything like that, but I know somebody who could figure it out. Yeah. And, and then they came to our door. Um, we were doing Shallow Hell at the time. So they walked into a place full of giant bodysuits and stuff 
as far as possible away from anything robotic, you know? And we tried to show them what we had done. They were trying to explain who they were. It was pretty funny, actually. <laughs> uh, but we really hit it off. And Alex and Martine, these two directors that they worked with in France, had done some illustrations for some robot ideas, sort of anime with like hair and some crazy clothes and stuff like that. And that was our launching point for the sculptures. Um, and, and they were just into it. We figured we would sort of team up and we would just figure it out. There was no deadline. There was no end goal. Like we want to do this for a specific concert. It was just, we just really want to figure out these characters and how to make this work. And this is, again, God, technology just grows in leaps and bounds. At the time, you know, they wanted to do like a curved LED face screen in the gold robot and that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. you know, there was nothing. The closest we got was rebuilding, like we hired the guy who does the Jumbotron screen oh, out of San wow. Francisco to help us figure out how to do something where you could make patterns move and stuff like that. Because with LEDs that could be three different colors, which meant at the time, three different wires coming out of it. So the bulk of everything was like, this is just gonna get massive. These guys are gonna look like Q-tips, these giant heads <laughs> and these skinny little bodies. So how do we squeeze the mechanics out the back and onto their back? It was just literally like uh, trial and error, figuring it out. And they wanted gauntlets where Tomah could actually use one hand and type onto the other and type responses and it would play out on the screen across his face. Right. Wow. And then on his other gauntlet, um, he had like pre-programmed buttons that he could press for like specific, you know, answers that he gets, you know, that he ends up stating quite frequently. Right, um, pre-Apple pre Watch, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we didn't know if they were gonna have voices and we debated, should we put in like a weird vocoder or like a Darth Vader kind of thing? Um, and then we realized that there's so much noise going on in the head with everything else. It's just gonna be more noise, literally, you know, vocal noise. Right. Um, and because we, we wanted to put fans in there so we could circulate air and stuff. But um, the actual design of the characters took months. Um, I went away and did Shallow Hal and came back and we finished stuff up and then did some photo shoots and then started experimenting. But our relationship with them, they started a company called it Daft Arts and everyone in Daft Arts, including the guys and then myself, we all just had this really great shorthand together and um, this ability to collaborate and bounce ideas off of each other that was very casual. So like the idea for set pieces or stories or whatever would come from one person and then another would, you know, be the cameraman. Like when we did Prime Time of Your Life, that was a short film I wanted to do originally. And they said, here's our music. If you wanna find a song that it fits to, we'd love to do it as a music video because we really like the story. And then I ended up directing it. Tama was the cameraman. Giman was the producer. And we just sort of would like rotate around. And then when they did um, uh, Daft Punk's Electroma, the feature film, I was helping produce it and building all the robot gags. And they were both directing it and hired somebody else to play each of them in the movie. <laughs> They're not actually in it. Wow. So it, it was you just, just filled like, the beans. Yeah. 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 But it's like, it, I kept thinking like, you know, Andy Warhol had that place called the factory. Yeah. I always imagined it. Like there was like one ringleader throwing out ideas and everybody was making stuff. And that's kind of what working with Daft, Daft Punk has always been like, I mean, we've done some museum shows since and, and they used a clip from Electroma to announce the end of everything wow. where we blew up one of the guys. 
Um, it's, it's just been a, a great collaborative experience, but like, like with you, you like, like I like working with people I've worked with before and I understand and I, and I relate to, you know? So whether it's you or Spike Jones or the Farrelly brothers or whoever, there's an enjoyment out of the whole experience that comes from the experience itself. Movie making is so hard to yeah. not, not do it with people who you know you can get along with and who are on the same page. I mean, it, it, yeah. it's unthinable, you know? Yeah, and to be working with somebody for 16 hours at times. Yeah, every day. Yeah. If you don't like them, <laughs> you're going to be in hell for a long time. Life is too short. Well, yeah. how, how great to live your life by your ingenuity. You're constantly being challenged to do something new. And, you know, I, we barely touched the surface of what you've done, and I hope we can do it again. But uh, I really appreciate you spending the time with us on this and the work that we've done together. Oh, likewise, dude. I, I had so much fun with you. I'm hoping that we can think up something else to do to, to have fun with, you know, again. I'd love it. Well, Tony Gardner, Alterian Studios, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll do it again soon. And happy 30th anniversary on Sleepwalkers. <laughs> Thanks, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.